Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. We're in a very kind of a neat part uh, because God gave Moses a song, if you remember. Um, And it was a song that was for the purpose of reminding them. He says, it will be a witness for me. It's a reminder to them that they were supposed to teach to themselves and to their children this song so that if and when they found themselves in a place of, you know, struggle, oppression, even captivity, that this song would serve as a reminder to them, not just, not just uh, to help them realize why they were in this place, but to also know who they could call out to when they found themselves in this place and why he would even take them back when they did call out. It's really an amazing song. And last week we kind of, uh, you know what? I didn't pray. How come nobody reminded me? Wake up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning and for this opportunity to come and open up your word. Okay, I am praying. As Kevin prayed this morning, Lord, would you soften up our hearts that we might be soiled to receive your seed this morning, Lord, uh, that it might implant into us and that uh, the roots might grow deep. So, Lord, I thank you for this time and the opportunity. Lord, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So back to the song. Last, year, uh, last week, we talked about the, the, how good songs are at helping us to learn and remember really important information. Um, And remember, I mentioned the ABCs. Maybe some of you learned the ABCs by song. Well, it occurred to me, because nobody sang along with me at all last week, that maybe you've never been taught anything by song. So I'm going to teach you a Bible verse this morning, right now, through song. And it's not just a Bible verse. It's actually really great instruction. The Bible verse is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Can I get those lyrics, please? All right, here we go. You see the lyrics on on the screens here? Proverbs 3, 5, 6. I'm going to sing it. You all listen. And now you're going to learn why I'm not on the worship team. But you all listen along. Read the words and listen along, okay? It goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Got it? All right. Now we're all going to sing it just like that, okay? Ready, set, go. Trust in the Lord in all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. Yes, excellent. Now I guarantee you're gonna go out of here today and you're gonna be going, trust in the Lord. But look at the words. Look at the words of the song. It's not just a catchy tune and uh, doesn't rhyme, but look at the words. Look what it's saying. This is something that we've talked about continuously. This is the issue that he's dealing with with them, that they're t- turning their hearts away from God and putting them on idols and themselves and any other thing. And this verse in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. You know what? You find yourself in a place of dryness or obstacle or struggle, sing the song. It will remind you why you're there because you've turned your heart away. It will tell you who to turn to, and it will tell you why so he can direct your path. Amen? There you go. So, the song. Yep, someone's already humming it, right? Can't stop yourself now. Good job. All right, so we're going to actually look at this song. Now, I want to point out two things to you. Moses did not actually write this song. I kind of said that last week, but really, God gave Moses the words for this song. Now, Moses is taking it to, so it kind of moves a little bit back and forth where it seems like God is speaking through the song or Moses is speaking, but you have to understand that God wrote this. He gave it to Moses to give to the people, and so listen, we're going to read along with me here. Give ear, O heavens, chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. 
Let my teachings drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. First of all, I want you to know that Moses, through this song, and God essentially, is calling out to his own creation as witnesses to these words. He's calling out to the earth. He's calling out to heaven. He's calling out to all of creation to be witnesses of what he's saying. You know what's interesting? And this is what I realized. All of creation, all of God's creation, still obeys the Lord except his own people. Did you ever realize that? We sing a song that says the wind and the waves still know his name. It's not like the wind and the waves are like, oh yeah, I know that guy. His name is Jesus. No, it means that they obey him. All of his creation, with the exception of humanity, obeys the word of the Lord. And he says, um, let these words soften you up so that you hear them. This is the thing that blows my mind about God. Even after all of their rebellion... Uh, that we've seen even in the, in the last, well, just these last 40 years, which is really nothing to God. It's a blip on his screen. Even in this time, after all this rebellion, God's compassion is still so obvious when he says, let these words soften your hearts to receive them. He's saying, let my, let my words fall on you like the morning rain, like the dew that softens up the ground so that it can receive what it is I'm giving to you. He's not saying, let my words fall on you like a lightning bolt and burn you to a cinder, but rather let my words soften up the soil of your hearts so that you could hear what I'm about to tell you in this song. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distilled the dew, as rain drops on the tender herbs. You know what? As I'm reading this this week and I'm thinking, God, man, you are so gracious to us. You love us so much that you're saying, let my words soften up your heart like the soil so it can receive the seed. Uh, I'm reminded of another part of the Bible. And remember how many times I have said that Deuteronomy is Jesus's favorite book. Not just because he quotes it so often, but he built his parables off of the wisdom that God gave them in this book of Deuteronomy. What am I talking about right now? What parable am I talking about right now? Anybody know? I'm talking about the soil, the seed and the sower, right? So turn over there with me. It's in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is giving them now a parable. Now, he's built this parable, I believe, off of this understanding of what God has just told them in this song in Deuteronomy. And remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. So if they really did teach this song to their children and children and children and so on, they would be familiar with this concept of God's word falling on them like a gentle rain and softening up their hearts like the soil of the earth to receive the seed of knowledge and wisdom that he's giving to them. And it says in verse three, listen and behold. You know, when Jesus says listen and behold, he's saying, hear what I'm saying and understand what I'm saying. A sower went out to sow and it happened that he sowed that some seed fell on the wayside of the birds of the air and, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded out no, it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on the ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some one hundred. Now, I have heard, and I might have even thought this initially when I heard this, when you hear this, it'd be like, I wonder what seed I am in this story. But here's the thing. The seed is the same seed throughout this entire story. The seed doesn't change. And the question to you isn't, what seed are you? The question is, what soil are you? In fact, what condition of soil are you? Are you that hardened soil who, when the seed falls, and that's this, by the way, the word of God, when the seed falls on your heart, does it just bounce around and scatter so that it can be easily plucked away? Or are you the soil that is... Um, able to accept the seed, but you're very thin and rocky so that there might be some uh, initial or even emotional response to the word, but when life gets a little bit hard, um, it all gets scorched away. It goes and burns away. Are you the soil that's thorny, 
That, what he'll go on to explain, is the soil, the person that is so wrapped up in the cares and the pursuits of this world, the pursuits of riches and prosperity and position, or worrying about what this person thinks or where I'm going here, that the word gets choked out of you. Or are you that subtle, soft, receiving soil that the seed lands on and it takes root and it grows deep so that no matter what happens, the sun comes out or thorns come in, that that seed takes root and grows up? What soil are you? God's desire is that you will be softened up by the instruction of his word so that you can receive his word. You know, here's the real question. Not which soil are you, which soil are you today, right? Because don't you sometimes feel like, well, I'm t- right now this morning, I'm ready to receive. I'm that soft soil. But tomorrow, when the alarm goes off and I look at my calendar for the day or for the week and I start thinking, oh, I got to get this done. I got to do this. I got to meet with this person. This deadline's coming up. Maybe you're starting to become that rocky, shallow soil or the soil that's choked out by thorns. Right? But what's the secret to becoming that soft, supple, receiving soil? The word of the Lord washing over you and softening you up, just as we look at here in Deuteronomy. That's part of the song. That's the very first part of the song. He says, I'm giving you this song to remind you, let the word wash over you and soften you up. And then he says in verse 3, for, I'm just warning you right now, I'm getting through this whole song. So hold on. It says in verse 3, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to God. He is the rock. He is wor- his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Moses here, he, through this song, God, remember, I may say Moses, but God is telling them through Moses how... Um, Great God is. I think the hope is that if they understood or remember how great God is, they will be less likely to be drawn away to what he's going to call false gods or gods that they didn't know or gods who are come to nothing. The hope is it remember how great God is. And hopefully that will bring you to a place of saying, I don't need, you know, I don't need that. I don't need this. I have the the greatest God there is, the only true and living God there is. Um, And he loves me. He knows my name. The hope is that that will keep you from idols. It says, for his ways are, uh, it says, he's the rock. (laughs) This is, again, an image that will be carried throughout the entire Bible. He says that that God says through Moses, that I am the rock. It's neat. In my Bible, it's, it's capitalized. You all have it capitalized. And so it's not like a rock. <laughs> it's like the rock. That means he's stable. He's strong. He's unchanging. He's unending. Solid. Again, Jesus will go back to this imagery in Matthew chapter 7. He tells us another parable. I'm going to look there. You can turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 7. Now, this, in this chapter, he's, he's going through and he's telling several parables. But this one, he tells them that in the end, people will come to him and they'll say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, no, I don't know you. And they'll say, yes, but didn't we do this? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform miracles? We did it all in your name. And Jesus will say, no, depart me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. That word lawlessness is iniquity or disobedience very specifically. You workers of disobedience. He says, I didn't know you. And then he tells them this this parable of the, the rock. He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken them to the one who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and its fall was great. And he is saying in this that I am the rock on which you build your life. And if you build it on anything else, it's sand. And when struggles come in and strife comes into your life, it will fall apart. 
And Jesus refers back to this idea in this song that they should have all known that God himself said, I am the rock. So important. Build your life on the rock. And he says, all of my ways are just and righteous. All of my ways. And I wonder, like, do you think Moses thought for a minute, like, do I really need to remind everybody here that all of God's ways are justice and righteous? Is that something I really need to remind people? What do you think? (laughs) How many times have you done the same thing? Wondered if God's ways are right and justice. Maybe you don't think you have, but if you've ever done this, and when you've seen some thing happen in the world, you watch the news and something happens, and you're like, how could a God of love allow something like that to happen? In that moment, you are questioning God's judgment because you're saying, essentially, I would never do that. If I were God, I wouldn't let that happen. God, I could probably show you a thing or two. I hesitate to even say that, even in just. Because we, but we do that, don't we? Even if we don't express it out loud, sometimes we're like, well, how could God let, how could God allow that to happen? God, did you miss this one? This horrible thing? And God reminds us in Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. The way I do things is not the way you do things. In fact, the way you do things is horrible and bad and messy. The way I do things is, is, is way up here. The way I think is way up here. And the way you think is way down there, way down, way down there. And he says, my ways are right, for all his ways are justice, and God of truth and without justice, righteousness and upright is he. Then he goes on, he says, they have corrupted themselves. By the way, that means God hasn't changed. God doesn't change. It says they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish and perverse and crooked a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord? He's saying, is this how you treat the God who saved you out of bondage? Is this how you treat the God who you know saved you? And many of them witnessed it with their very eyes, the miracles and provision of God. Is this how you treat? He's, God is using Moses, but really what is God is saying, is this how you treat me? Oh, foolish and unwise people, is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children. Just that whole section right there, those two um, verses, he's saying, remember, be reminded. And if you can't remember, go and ask someone older than you who does remember. It reminds me in, in Revelation chapter two, verse four, when God is talking to the churches in the end times and he goes to Ephesians and what does he say to them? I, I see your works. I see what you're doing, but you have left your first love. He says, remember, you've left your first love. And that word left, it isn't lost, by the way. It's left, and that word means abandoned. You abandoned your first love. He says, remember, remember. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of an inheritance. You know, after all of this, after you read all of this, and he's saying, like, I haven't changed, they've changed. He's going to let us know that they turned their face from me. They've gone on to worship false gods, other gods. He's going to call worshiping idols and acts of abomination against him. He's going to say, they provoked me to jealousy but what he's, he still, look at this, he still considers them in verse nine. He says, they are still my special treasure. Oh man, I am so, so grateful for God's patience and long suffering, for his love that goes beyond anything I can measure because all of the things that he's describing that they will do and then they will do, I've also done. Now I've never thrown my child onto a a flaming idol 
as they will do at some point in their lifetime. But I have cast my eyes on other idols, mostly myself. But I have turned my face from God. But in God's patience and compassion and long-suffering, he has welcomed me back each and every time. And God is saying, I I love them. They're my special treasure. You know, in my devotional this week, God reminded me of of something really special in a passage, uh, Jeremiah 18. I'm going to read this to you. In Jeremiah 18, God calls the prophet Jeremiah to go down to the potter's workshop. And while he's there at the potter's workshop, he witnesses the potter making a pot on a wheel. Have you ever seen that before? You know, the wheel spins and he's got a lump of clay and he's like, have you ever done it? Have you ever thrown clay before? It's fun. I did it in college. It was fun. But um, you really, this, this illustration and this really starts to mean something if you've tried it because what happens is you've got this pot, uh, this piece of clay on this wheel and it's spinning around and you kind of brace yourself like you put an elbow in here and because when you put that clay on the wheel, you know what it wants to do? It wants to buck off there. And so you're like, you're like doing this, trying to, and you're like pushing it in and trying to get it centered. And then you take your thumb and, you, and once you've got it centered, you start pressing in on this clay, right? And you know, if you were the clay, you'd be like, ow, can't you just leave me alone? But you know, you're thinking as the potter, no, I've got a plan for you. And this is what this potter is saying. He's like, I've got a plan for this uh, unruly uh, lump of clay. And it's like pushing, he's, he's pushing it in and Jer- Jeremiah witnesses and pulling up this, this clay. And he begins to form whatever is in the mind of the potter. He begins to form it right there. And Jeremiah is watching this, right? But then what happens is the clay, and this happens for real, it starts to get a little bit off center and it starts to get all wobbly and all of a sudden it goes off track. And you know what you do as the potter? You crush it all back down again and you get it back re-centered. And so it's just, it was almost a pot, but then it's all like wobbly and wonky. And so then what you do is you crush it all back down and then you start again and then you bring it back up again. And as many times as it goes off wonky, you smash it down and start again. And so Jeremiah witnesses this. And what he sees is um, that as many times as the clay goes offline and gets all wobbly, the potter brings it back down and then redeems it again into a pot. And look at, in, in Jeremiah 18, it says this. This is God speaking. Oh, house of Israel, I cannot do with you, uh, can I not do with you as this potter? Now, this is Jeremiah, so this is way after this time of Deuteronomy when they've gone astray several times. He says, can I not do with you as with this potter? Says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck down, to pull, uh, to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I brought to bring upon it. And what he's saying right there is, if that nation, if that people, if that person who's gone all wonky calls out to the Lord and says, I'm sorry that I've gone my own way. The Lord says, all right, I'll bring you back in. I will relent from the consequences that were coming and I will start to reform you again. Man, I am so thankful for this. Now, the reason I bring this up is because as we read through the song of Deuteronomy, you start to think, holy smokes. I mean, God, He's like, I'm going to bring in the beasts and I'm going to bring in snakes and there's going to be, you know, but the whole time you have to, you have to understand that what he's saying is this will happen. But if the nation turns and comes back to me, I'll stop. I'll stop. Phew. (laughs) Is it like a thousand degrees in here or is it? So then he goes on, he says, I found, he's talking about now the, the, this, this people. He says, I, he found him in a desert land and it, in a wasteland, howling wilderness. He enriched him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That, I mean, we know that saying, right? We'll say, you're the apple of my eye. But you know what that means in Hebrew? It literally means the pupil. It means the pupil. And so what is God saying is that I kept them as, as if they are reflected in my pupil. How close do I have to get to you so that I can see my reflection in your pupil? 
How close? Shall I demonstrate? No, it would be weird. Very close. Terry, too close. Very close. I have to be like right up against you to see myself in your pupil. But this is the image that God is giving them. He's saying, I kept them so close that you could see their reflection in my pupil. You know, if God had a pupil. But that's what he's saying. He's giving you that image. That God is saying, I kept them close. I desire for them to be close. Remember he said in, in chapter 30, cling to him for he is your life. Close. Then he says, he gives this beautiful image. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings and taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. It's such an amazing imagery. And you're going to, you know, you'll probably hear all kinds of things like, well, when an eagle builds its nest, and then it wants to, you know, it makes it all soft and comfy for birds, and, and then the eagles, but then the eagles, they don't ever want to leave the nest, and so they start stirring up the nest and making it uncomfortable for the little baby eagle. And then when the baby eagle gets on the edge of the nest, she goes, boom, and kicks them out, so forces them to fly, and they almost fall, and she swoops up. And actually, none of that's true in eagle life. Um, that's all very cool imagery, but it's not true. This is the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is what the eagle actually does. Um, the eagle gets on the side of the nest or over the nest and flaps her wings, hovering over the nest. And that stirs up the nest like it stirs up the eagles. Because what do the eagle, the little eaglets do then? they begin to imitate. So you've got all these little, they're, they're in the nest and they start doing this, like this. And the mother's stirring up like this. She's flying over and she's stirring up. And then what happens is the eagles, the little baby eagles, they get on the edge of the nest and they're going like this. And the mother is now outside the nest and she's flapping up and she's demonstrating, this is how you do it. Imitate me, imitate me, is what the mother eagle is doing, right? And so then what she does is she soars out and then the eagle, the little baby eagles, they're going like this, and then they kind of step out. Now what happens is they're not always great flyers right at the beginning. And so as they do come down, the mother eagle will come down underneath and create almost like a wind barrier underneath. And so then this little baby eagle is kind of going up alongside and she starts soaring. And what they do is they fly in these small circuits around the nest, right? Little by little. And it's a process, right? She, the little baby eagles learn to imitate their mother little by little, right? Now there's this other really cool thing and this is where like, it blows my mind, God's creation. Eagles, when they're babies, they have this liquid around their eyeballs. It's called pectin, right? And as they begin to get older and as they begin to fly in these um, circuits around their nest, the pectin begins to harden in their, in their eye sockets, right? And what happens is this pectin begins to react to the gravitational pull of the earth so that they always know that they're, what direction north is. They have like a built-in compass in their head through this hardened pectin so that as, as it grows and as it gets hardened, they're always able to find their way back, always. Now, think of that, what God is saying here. He's stirring up the nest. He says, like a mother eagle, I'm saying, imitate me. Imitate me and do as I do. And as the little eagles, we're supposed to be, well, we're going to do. And what happens is God coaxes us out. Remember, this is the process of what? Sanctification, right? Becoming more and more like Christ. As we imitate Christ, as we become more and more like him, and he draws us out. But what he does also, which is amazing, is he implants in us the, the pectin, the thing inside of us, so that if we ever get lost, we can always find our way back. Because that is his desire, isn't it? That no matter where we go, no matter how far off course we get, we can always come back. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's saying here. In this verse, that is what he's saying is no matter how far away you go, and they're going to go pretty far, he's saying you can always come back. And I will always take you back. In verse 15, he made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. You know what? I, just really quick, this is really interesting. Honey from the rock, there's a song out right now called Honey from the Rock. 
You know what that's really referring to, honey from the rock? In this area, there are bees that actually make their nests either in the clefts of the rock, or did you know in Utah, they found bees that burrow into the sandstone? So instead of burrowing into like wood or dirt, they burrow into literally the rock and then make their honeycombs in there. And so he literally is talking about honey from the rock, meaning the honeycombs of the bees are in the clefts of the rocks here. Same thing with the soil in this area um, that are in these rocky clefts and cliffs. There are actually olive trees that are growing up in these areas. And so he's talking about honey from the bees in the clefts of the rock and olive oil from the trees that are produced along this way. Then he says, curds from cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine and the blood of grapes. You see what he's saying right there is, I didn't send them in there merely to sustain life, but I blessed them beyond measure with provision. Look at all of the good things he said. I gave them all of these amazing blessings. I'm reminded of the verse in Ephesians that says, now to him, speaking of who? Jesus. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Exceedingly abundantly, abundantly, exceedingly. That's, that's a lot. Can we agree? That's a lot. I mean, abundantly would have been good. Exceedingly would have been good. But he says exceedingly abundantly. God has such blessing. He says, I bless them. Look at all I bless them. Truly it was the land of milk and honey, the things that we need to survive as well as the things that make life sweet. He's saying, I gave them all of these things. But in verse 15, it says, but Jeshurun, Jeshurun is like, um, like a nickname that he gives the people of Jerusalem. It literally means the upright one. Because look what he's saying. He goes, but the upright one grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. And then he forsook God who made him. Remember I said last time that they got into the land and they got fat. It was like God provided and they were like, well, we're full now. I guess we don't need anything else. We don't need God because I've got everything I need. Whew. And there's danger in that, right? And when we, we look around, we were like, I don't need anything. I don't even really need to pray today. I don't need to read the word because there's nothing that I need from God. And God says, how about a relationship with me? How about keeping me close? He says that they did this. They forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. He's talking about you treated God with contempt. You even mocked God. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. That means that they did, in Hebrew it says, they did detestable acts. What were the detestable? God says, they did detestable acts. What were the detestable acts? Look at the next verse. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, the new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Remember the purpose of all of this. It is for God to say, look, this is where you're at. This is why you're there. But look who it is who's telling you, you can come back to me. Remember that all the way through the song, remember. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. Remember jealousy to God when it, when it talks to the jealousy of God. He's not saying envious. He says, you're mine, and I'm not sharing you with anyone. That's the jealousy of God. He's saying, no, you're mine. I will not share you with other false, like dumb gods. It says, and, you know, Paul or someone will say, dumb gods. That means they can't hear, but it seems fitting, <laughs> dumb gods. Um, you, they have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. And I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. So he's going to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to exact justice on the Jewish nation, on the people. He will use them as a tool to chasten them and to correct them. For fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest of hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set fire on the foundations of the mountains. 
I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents, the dust the sword will destroy outside, and there shall be terror within for the young men and the virgin, the nursing child, and the, gray hair, the man of gray hairs. La, 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 la. <laughs> not such a happy song right here, but super instructive. Remember that God is saying that he'll do all these things. But remember in Jeremiah, what does he say? But if they turn and come back, I will take them back. I will relent and I won't do any of this. 27, had I not feared the wrath of the enemy. Oh, he says, excuse me. He says, I would have left, I, I would have... I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. This is what he's saying is the, one of the reasons that he stopped from just completely destroying them was that he didn't want the foreign nations that he was using to correct and chasten them to think that they were all that in a bag of chips. He wanted them to understand that it wasn't through their greatness that they had overcome this people, but that it was a work of God. He's going to say, how could a thousand take on 10,000? Because it was a miraculous work of God. That's one reason. He says, I don't want these nations to become so high and mighty in their own thoughts that they think they've done all this and then begin to act cruelly, which, by the way, is exactly what happens. The Assyrians and the Babylonians, they become cruel in their treatment of the Jews, and God does essentially come in against them because they went beyond what he was using them for. But secondly, God doesn't want the Jewish people to think that it is these foreign nations' power that has overcome them. The main goal of this whole uh, Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity is to chasten and correct his people so they will come back. Not to destroy them, but to bring them back. Because he loves them. We understand this. Any parents here? Any parents? Yeah, a couple of us, right? Do you ever have to discipline your children? When they do something really, really wrong, you'd be like, that's fine. I'm sure it's going to be fine. Or do you say, nope, okay, no iPad for a week. <laughs> That wasn't a thing, by the way, when I was a kid. We were grounded because there was nothing to do in our rooms when I was a kid. You just sat there. This is terrible. Now, you send their kid, your kid to their room and they're like, yes. There's all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> 28, for they are a nation. Now, he's talking about now these foreign nations. For they are a nation void of counsel. Nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and put 10,000 to a fight? He's saying, how could they misconstrue this? How could they look at this and say, well, they did this, rather than to see that there was a higher power involved here? Why? Because they were like focused on themselves, saying, we're amazing. We are awesome. It says, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom and, the and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is it not laid up in, the, in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the thing to come hastens upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. And when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought to refuge? So now he's talking back about the, the Jewish people, and he's saying, oh, where are all these false gods that you were relying on? How come they're not helping you in this time? How come you're not calling out to them and seeing some kind of action happen? Now see that, oh, he will say, where are their gods, the rock? And verse 38, who ate the fat of their sacrifice and drank the wine of their drink offering? Then uh, let them rise and help you and be your refuge. 
Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. Gets a very emphatic statement that says, there is no other God. He's saying, where are this, these other gods that you were sacrificing to, that you gave wine and drink offering to and called out to? Where are they? Where are they? They don't exist because there is no other God except me, he says. I kill, I make alive. You know, that's, <laughs> that's one of those like, really harsh statements where God says, I kill, I make alive. But you know what he's saying right there? Life belongs to me. God says, life belongs belongs to me. That's why he says to them later on, or he said in Exodus, um, when you kill an animal to eat it, drain out the blood. Don't drink the blood because in the blood is life and life is mine. He says, I kill, I make a life. Life belongs to me. I create it, I take it. You know, God gave this incredible gift of procreation to his creation, but humanity in its elevated and self-aware state, misunderstood the idea of procreation and said, we create life. I can create life. And if I can create life, then I also have the right to take life. That's where we're at. I have the power to create life. We can procreate. I can create my whole family. This is what we think as human, humans. If I can create life, I certainly can take it as well. As we see ourselves right now in our culture as a culture of death that says that, you know what, if we, can t if we can create it, we can take it, it's no big deal. It's up to me. It's up to me personally. I can make that decision. And God says, oh, no, no, no. I create life. I take life. It's mine. Life is mine. We're in that place. We're in that place where we say, um, I can create life. I can take life. I'm like a God. Do you know who said that? Lucifer said that I will rise up to the heights of the Almighty. I'll be as great as God. And he was worshiping himself in that moment. Do you know that idolatry, all idolatry is that? It doesn't matter if it's a statue or if it's a job or it's a, a retirement plan or your family. All of idolatry comes from that moment where Lucifer said, I will be God. I'm God. And he worshiped himself, and God cast him out. Think about it. Even if you're worshiping a statue, even if you were these people and you're worshiping a statue, what is that? It's a thing that you made, that you created, that you control. It does nothing. It says nothing. It doesn't speak. It's nothing but a statue. But you worship it because ultimately you're saying, I control this. So what you're doing, what they were doing was worshiping themselves. This, the, uh, Lucifer was cast from heaven because he thought of himself as God. He worshiped himself. And from that moment on, he has been trying to suck humanity into the same thing, worshiping yourself as God. And God says, I'm the only God. Me, I'm the only one. <clears throat> I wound and I heal, he says, nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. Verse 44, I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemies. It's like God is saying, vengeance belongs to me. He says it twice here. Vengeance is mine. Don't you feel like sometimes like, all right, I'm willing to concede that God, vengeance is yours. When? When are you going to do that? God, I, I see it happening. I see the wicked prospering all the time. Lord, when is it's just like, are you, are you ever going to do it? God reminded me, 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this, The Lord is not slack in keeping his promises, as some count or understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone comes to repentance. See, we look around and we say, all right, now I'm good with God. Now, Lord, punish the wicked. Look at that guy over there. He cheated me. He's wicked. You should... Exact your vengeance right now, and I'll watch, and it'll be cool, and call down. You want me to do it, God? You want me to call down thunder and lightning? Because I'll do it. 
And God says, you know, don't count my slackness as slowness, but understand that it's patience. Maybe God has got a plan for that person that you don't see. Maybe you were the person that someone years ago said, Lord, why aren't you striking down this person? And God says, because I, my, my hope is, my plan is that everyone comes to repentance, even that guy. But I sure am glad that God didn't answer whosoever prayer that was in my life 22 years ago before I had a chance to call out for forgiveness of my sins and accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm glad that Jesus was long-suffering in that moment for me. So I'm going to trust God and understand that vengeance is his, not just the idea of vengeance, but when that happens. And I'm going to do what it is that he's told me to do. Remember, we talked about that a few years. I'm not going to worry about the things that I don't understand and try and figure those. I'm going to do the things he's told me to do. I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, this, this last part of this song is amazing. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This would have been a little bit of a shock to hear for these people because these are basically, this is the Jewish people. But here Moses, under the inspiration of God, says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. That word atonement in Hebrew is propitiation. It's propitiation. <laughs> propitiation. When I read that, there's a verse that I read years ago that stuck out in my head, and it was because um, I was teaching through and I couldn't say the word propitiation, but it's 1 John 2.2, okay? 1 John 2.2. This is John writing after Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? This is what he writes, and he himself, this is talking about Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not, only, not for us only, but for the whole world. Isn't this amazing? What you have to see is, this is the last section of the song, the very last few lines of this song that he's teaching them. At the very end, what God does is he ends the song with the promise of Jesus, does that blow your mind? If it doesn't blow your mind, it ought to blow your mind that at this time he's telling them all this. He ends this with, and there's going to come one who will be the propitiation. John writes and identifies it's Jesus. Oh, man. And he ends the song. That's the end of the song. So Moses came with Joshua the son of Nun, and spoke all these words in the song and the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to Israel, and he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. Do you get that? Do you hear what he's saying? This is your life. Do you ever hear people say, well, faith is very important to me. My faith plays a big part of my life. And God says, it should be your life, not a big part, not a little part, not important to you. It is your life. It is not a futile thing. It is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Then the Lord spoke to Moses on the very same day, saying, go up this mountain of Arabim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, view the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> uh, you know, God doesn't mince words, I guess. And, and on the mountain which you ascend and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, dies in the mountain, uh, Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. You know what really struck me when I read that? All throughout this time, and you can go back and check me, but throughout this whole time, this is what I see. Moses never refers to these people as his people. It's always those people, your people, the people you gave me, but he never calls them my people. I thought that was interesting that God says, now you're going to die and you're going to be gathered to your people. Finally, it's like he's saying, Moses, your work is done. Now you're going to be gathered together with your people. Essentially what he's saying is you're going to die. You're going to be ushered into heaven to be surrounded by those who went on before you, your people. But he says, because you transgress against me, 
the children of, with the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go in there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. And we talked about that last week as a reminder of what happened. God said, Moses, because you misrepresented my plan for the people by striking the rock when I told you to speak to it, you're not going to go and lead them in. You're not going to go into the land with the people. But you know what I know? Is that he says, you know what? You can go up and you can see. And he takes him to a place where he can see the entire land splayed out before him. And you know what else? God says, you know, Moses, you don't know this right now, but you are actually going to get to go in. Because we know on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is at the top of the mountain, he brings Peter and James and John with him. And they're up there and the heavens open up and Jesus is glorified. And who is standing there right with him? Moses and Eli- Elijah or Elisha? I can't. <laughs> One of those prophets. You would think I would know that. Moses is there. He's in the land. You know what God says? You're not going to go in with the people, but later on you're going to get in. I also believe that it's these two guys who are the witnesses that we see in Revelation as well, literally in the streets of Jerusalem. I can't prove it. But God is gracious, isn't he? God is long-suffering. God is patient and loving and, and just. He does, God don't play, though. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. What a beautiful song. Lord, what a great a reminder. So many places. Lord, that you are loving. You are compassionate. Lord, you are serious. Oh, Lord, that you call us back. But when we stray, you say, come back and I will welcome you back, Lord. I thank you for that. Lord, I pray as we go out of here today that we might be changed. Lord, we might think, what soil am I today? Lord, am I the softened up soil ready to receive your word in whatever form you come to me, Lord, or I am rocky or thorny or shallow this week, Lord. Help me to receive your word to be soft, accepting. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.